Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Dragoons Walking Commentaries. I know I intend to record these while walking in general, but uh, we're opening a new campus, the college that I work IT for, and so I'm having to bop over to the other campus, and uh, I'm way too busy to squeeze in my uh, daily three-mile walk, which I usually do on what's nominally my lunch break, and then I eat lunch in my office. So I am heading out to uh, this new campus to do a lot more work. I figured I would record this episode on my drive out. Now that I know the way, we won't be interrupted by my GPS giving me instructions. So what I'd like to talk about today, it's just a topic that popped into my head, is Palladium Books. Uh, one of my first experiences in role-playing, you know, as soon as we got past the the initial impression that Redbox D&D was was all there was you know we played we played the red and blue box as I described in my first episode and had a ton of fun with it but then all of a sudden we all became aware of everything all of the TSR games that were out um, you know Traveler and Cyberpunk and the other games that were gifted to me in those care packages and one of our friends you know got us into Palladium Fantasy Robotech was the first game I purchased with my own money, and then there was TMNT and Other Strangeness, which we actually got into before the cartoon was a huge thing. Um, so, Palladium, let's talk about it. A lot of people have a love-hate relationship with Palladium, or even sometimes a hate-hate relationship. They say the system is a mess, um, that uh, Kevin Sambina himself comes down hard on the fans and does not allow for fan content, etc. My thoughts on Palladium are kind of as follows. Uh, I believe sometimes that while I understand the IP protection angle, squashing fan content is a little shooting oneself in the foot. But on the flip side, the Rifter still sells well and Palladium's still in business, which a lot of companies can't say. Um, their prices have barely risen since the 80s. They have consistent production values. Sure, their books aren't hardcover and full-color interior, but I mean, we did well with those books in the 80s, so aside from the argument that could be made about selling them on shelves next to 5th edition D&D, or, or any of the FFG products, you really don't need the color slick interiors to function. The only complaint that I could possibly have about the form factor of Palladium Books is that in the Texas heat, the humidity and heat combination always makes the plastic coating on the covers peel at the corners and edges. So, the Palladium system, um, it's basically Kevin's alterations to AD&D to make it more to his liking. So, most combat is D20 based. You're looking to roll high. Most skills are percentage based. You're looking to roll low. Not super complex, especially compared to the other games that were out at the time. But where the complexity comes in is combat. 
And while Palladium is supposed to be a megaversal system, cross-compatible between all the systems, there's even a Rift conversion book to allow you to play Palladium fantasy characters in Rifts or Robotech characters in Rifts. We find that it is not always completely compatible. For example, the newer books in the Palladium system ascribe to the concept that creatures get two attacks per round or melee just for drawing breath being alive. It's pretty clear in the older books that untrained creatures, untrained people, get one attack. And that getting that second attack is a special thing that happens either through training or through leveling up if your training is something of a less martial bent, like hand-to-hand non-men of arms or, or something like that. Base damage for attacks is unclear. Martial art training will give you all kinds of nifty attacks, but sometimes it's not entirely clear what the basic punch and kick of a normal human are. And sometimes, when you see that a kick attack is given by a type of hand-to-hand training at second or third level, that implies that an untrained character can't kick at all. And um, that gets a little confusing. But let's talk about the things I like about the system. Palladium Fantasy, the basic Palladium system, to me is an absolute ton of fun. And here's why. It's got a very different flavor from D&D. And part of that flavor, sadly, was lost when they went to their second edition. I know, I know, this is just like in the previous episode where I talked about how the first edition of everything is usually the purest vision. But seriously, the second edition of Palladium Fantasy was altered to be more compatible with Rifts. And that actually, in my opinion, took away from second edition Palladium Fantasy. Here's why. In first edition Palladium Fantasy, every type of man-at-arms class had their own hand-to-hand skill. And what this meant was that their abilities progressed at different rates as they climbed the levels. Palladium system goes from 1st to 15th level, and there's nothing above that. And the way it's designed, it's explicitly stated in most of the books. A lot of people complain about the cut-and-paste explanations, but take a look at FFG Star Wars line. Those $60 books are about 50% the same content in each book. So, it's not like Palladium's the only place doing it. Anyway, so there's 15 levels, and it's explained in the text that it should take you literal years, if ever, to top out at 15th level. So, uh, as you climb the levels, your hand-to-hand skill gives you different things at different levels, and most often, it's only one bonus that happens per level. Could be an additional attack. Could be a new type of attack. Could be a bonus to strike or parry or dodge or to pull punches or roll with the punch. The interesting point is everybody gets that at a different rate in a different order. So your hand-to-hand assassin tends to give you damage bonuses and hit bonuses at lower levels. Hand-to-hand gladiator out of one of the source books 
gives you bonuses to parry and to dodge and to put on a show. Everyone has a distinct fighting style based on their hand-to-hand -hand skill. Now, when you get to mages and priests and things, there is the hand-to-hand non-men-of-arms skill, and most of them end up taking it. But, your fighty types all have some sort of diversity. Paladins fight different from knights, who fight different from rangers, who fight different from, uh, from mercenaries, who are different from soldiers. So there's a lot of flavor there baked in. The skill system was there from the get-go, so it allows you to differentiate fighty types by their skills. You have hit points, and that is uh, your only damage resource in 1st Edition Palladium. That changes in 2nd Edition, and, and I'll someday get around to talking about why that's a bad thing. But your armor has SDC, Structural Damage Capacity. And as your armor absorbs damage, it becomes less effective. This was really cool to me. Because in D&D, especially the basic Dungeons & Dragons line, where you can conceivably, if you roll well on your 3d6 times 10 gold, pick up a suit of plate mail at first level, you can hang on to that armor, potentially, you know, to 10th, 15th, 20th level, as long as you don't find anything magical to replace it. And there's really nothing requiring you to pay attention to your armor, to maintain your armor. Some of that happens assumed in roleplay, and some players would prefer not to specifically say, hey DM, while I'm sitting around the campfire, I'm going to oil and uh, maintain my armor. But it's kind of neat that that's a resource that can run out. In recent versions of many role-playing games, resource management has taken a back seat because a lot of people feel it slows the game down and overcomplicates the game. But some of the things that I used to really love about role-playing was having the players plan out their expeditions. Are you carrying enough water? Are you carrying enough food? Um, that sort of thing used to be a key element in many role-playing games. Now it's kind of glossed over. Here's your magic component pouch. Have a nice day. It's different play styles. And I'll admit, sometimes I, I dig going for speed. But I like that armor can wear out. I like that Palladium allowed you to have weapons of quality with bonuses that were non-magical. Um, that's in the core book. You want to talk about spellcasters, Palladium allows spellcasters to have all kinds of neat uh, diversity. For example, you have your bog standard wizard, who, by the way, can cast high level spells at first level should you find them. But since all spell effects are tied to caster level, casting the legendary spell Armor of Ithin at first level, that's yeah, gonna be kind of cool but it's not going to be as effective or last as long as if it were cast by an experienced mage. So you have the wizard, but you also have psionics in the mind mage. You have diabolists who can cast their spells um, through 
wards that they can affix to things and activate. You have summoners who use summoning circles. There is a whole list of power words and things, as well as circles and wards that are in the book. That gives you a whole lot of really neat um, stuff to work with in the book. Um, the witch character class, sometimes a little controversial. You get access to spells, but you are trading in service to some dark entity. Some people love it for flavor. Some people hate it because we all... Gamers of a certain age went through the satanic panic in the 80s, and we had to deal with negative reactions to things like that. Uh, having a witch character class that specifically is in league with a demon is not the kind of thing you want to have to explain to your Sunday school teacher when everybody is on about D&D being evil or satanic. Uh, not that I've actually had to do that in real life. Um, well, okay. Yes, I did. And it was frustrating. Anyway. So there's all these different types of spellcasters. There's a couple different kinds of priests. There's a straight-on healer who, at second level, gains the ability to tap out a healing touch that, if you interpret the rules a certain way, is kind of unlimited. So there's lots of variety in character classes, lots of variety in magic. Races. Sure, you've got your standard elf and dwarf. You can also play orcs. Okay, D&D had half-orc, and half-orc is in there too. But there's also some other cool races. Changelings are in there. Trolls are in there. Wolfen, which are pretty awesome. These humanoid wolves, not lycanthropes, who have this massive Romanesque empire and are pretty much the biggest civilized threat to humanity um, in the setting. Wolfen are awesome. So, uh, Palladium Fantasy has all these really cool things going with it. It's got a great setting. The dungeon crawl that is in the main book, The Tombs of Gersidae, is, uh, it's got some neat elements that I don't want to spoil, but it's more than just a plain old dungeon crawl. There's something going on there. And some great magic items. Um, the doubling sword of chaos is an old favorite of mine. It appears to be a wooden practice sword, but when you roll damage, you roll a doubling cube from a backgammon set. So the sword does 248, 64 points of damage. The hit point scale in Palladium is roughly comparable to D&D-ish. Characters tend to start out with a lot more hit points because you start out with your physical endurance plus a D6. Physical endurance is typically 3d6. It can be higher or lower based on your race. Um, so you could start out with 10, 15 hit points, more if you're really fortunate. But everyone has a d6 hit die. So Dungeons and Dragons fighter type characters will catch up and surpass Palladium Fantasy characters rather quickly. And D&D characters tend to level faster at mid to high levels. And in fact have high levels that don't exist in Palladium. So, other things about the system that I really dig. Um, active defenses. If a PC is attacked, they can choose to parry or dodge. They can choose, if they're so skilled, to try to entangle the opponent's weapon. 
they can simultaneously attack and take advantage of the opponent leaving themselves open and uh, risk taking damage themselves to damage their opponent. All other things aside, uh, a melee attack succeeds on a five or better. Armor gives you an armor rating that says anything equal to this or below hits armor. So if your armor rating is eight, a five or less is a miss, a six, seven, or eight hits the armor. Anything above that hits the character. So it's uh, it's fairly simple. It doesn't run in reverse like D&D armor class. So the math is actually a little easier to explain the new players. Um, it's, it's a fairly straightforward system. There's lots of weapons in the core book. Um, different classes can gain proficiency in different weapons. Some spellcasters can even gain proficiency, which is pretty neat, in weapons that aren't traditional spellcaster weapons in other games. I really like Palladium Fantasy. I like the core system presented here. You take it to Ninjas and Super Spies, or to TMNT, or anything like that, the system gets a little more complicated in that there are many more martial arts. You have to add guns, and the original weapon proficiency system was a little interesting with firearms. There were sometimes ways to cheese the way that that system was written to um, take advantage of certain math built into the game. But all in all, it was still pretty cool. It was a good, solid core system that, while it had its warts, so did most games back in the 80s. And you could mix and match those early books in a in a fairly um, satisfying way. We borrowed a lot of stuff for TMNT. We borrowed a lot of stuff from Ninjas and Super Spies. Then came the MDC worlds. What is MDC? Mega Damage Capacity is MDC. One MDC point equals 100 hit points, or structural damage points, you're talking about armor and objects. One MDC equals 100 SDC. And that was thrown in there for the Robotech role-playing game to explain the difference between mecha and tanks and things like that, and people. MDC kind of turned the system on its ear because it added some power creep that wasn't there before and the MDC system was never quite balanced the way it should be. For instance, there's a tank in the Robotech role-playing game that has 100 MDC. That's, that's a lot of damage. The main gun on the tank does 1d8 MDC. So to put that in perspective, it would blow a city bus in half. Okay, great. That's awesome. That's what this mega damage is supposed to be like. But then if that tank which is presumably a main battle tank type vehicle, sat down in a slugging match with a comparable tank from another army. With 100 MDC each and doing 1d8 per shot, how long will these tanks chew on each other before there is a, a uh, decisive hit? All right, pausing the recording for a moment so that I can grab some caffeine before work. All right, so we were talking about MDC and how it started some power creep in the Palladium games. So it started with Robotech, and uh, the Robotech RPG, as I mentioned before, was one of the first RPGs, actually the first, that I published or purchased with my own money. 
and uh, it worked well enough in Robotech, but it started to, to crawl upward very quickly. And some of the NPC number or the MDC numbers were a little crazy. Um, for instance, uh, in Robotech, the Valkyrie fighter or Veritech fighter had something like 250 MDC in the main body. That is a ridiculous amount of damage. And uh, it's it requires multiple hits by multiple weapons to dig through that MDC. The source material, the Robotech cartoon, very rarely did a piece of mecha survive more than one hit from an anti-mecha weapon. I mean, if you watch the early episodes, or any of the episodes actually, um, most of the time when one mecha attacked another mecha, unless there was a main character piloting that mecha, like Roy Foker or uh, something like that, when you hit one of these things, they just blew up. And unless you were firing a ridiculous number of missiles, that was simply not going to happen in the role-playing game. There was a lot of choo-choo-choo-choo, okay, finally dropped a bad guy. Even the Zentradi Battle Pods, which had a modest 50 MDC, would only be destroyed by a single missile on a roll of a 5 or a 6 on one of these 1d6 times 10 missiles. And the gun pod on the Valkyrie generally did 3d6 or 6d6 damage, meaning that unless you rocked and rolled for what was called a full melee burst, implying that you're holding the trigger down for the whole 15 seconds that a melee round took, you were not going to destroy a Zentradi battle pod in a single hit. That did not emulate the show very well and made um, made combat take a really long time, especially since a ton of battle pods were generally on the field to fight uh, your, your PCs. And so that started a sort of slowing of combat that only got worse once Rifts was published and MDC numbers climbed up even further. Even light mecha, even small things like the Cyclone, which if you're unfamiliar with Robotech, is a motorcycle that reconfigures into powered armor around the character. 200 MDC. That is the equivalent of the main battle tank from the first book. And um, whew, it's a lot of damage. The body armor worn by the guys driving the Cyclones was 50 MDC the equivalent of the Zentradi Tactical Battle Pod, which is a huge mecha because inside that mecha is a giant Zentradi warrior who is big enough to pick up a human in their hand. You know, the Zentradi themselves are the size of a, of a human piloted mecha. So the power creep was a big problem. When you started to try to go, oh, it's a megaversal system, let's bring over ninjas and super spies martial arts. Well, since your bonuses to hand-to-hand -hand stack with your bonuses from Mecha Pilot, it was possible to do things like say, hey DM, can I take kickboxing from, can I take kickboxing from Ninjas and Super Spies and do it with um, Robotech? Well, sure you can, it's a megaversal system. Well, it was possible then to take kickboxing, stack the boxing skill on top so you got another free attack, 
and then turn around and have a pilot of, say, an alpha fighter that gets three extra attacks from the skill, and then use the ability from kickboxing to blow all your attacks on your first initiative pass, and just launch a ridiculous number of missiles, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense.